0: Did everybody get the handout? They're on the back uh, chair, and you're actually going to need to have them with you as we look at (laughs) Jeremiah chapter 7. Now I'll reveal the little secret. We are not going to cover every chapter of the book of Jeremiah. We uh, entitled this series, The Life of the Prophet Jeremiah. So we're going to hit the highlights of his career. Um, We'll do a good bit of the book, but we're going to skip, and obviously I've skipped chapters 4 through 6. For those of you that were with me uh, last spring, you'll recognize that. We begin with this perhaps most famous text, Because it's Jeremiah's most famous sermon, it is probably his first sermon, at least his first uh, recorded sermon, and for that reason, we want to look at the narrative paradigm. This is a biographical incident in his career, and so we want to ask the narrative paradigmatic questions, and at the top of your first page, we have the scene, which for this Uh, Sermon is Jerusalem, and the setting is the temple, and the occasion is Jeremiah's sermon. Now, the motif of the sermon is that time in this space is about to end in death. Now, I'm suggesting that as the motif because I want to look at the time-space interface, which we'll do on the second page of the outline. But I want to uh, note at the beginning this large focus upon the approaching doom or the approaching death of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. So time is approaching an end, and space is going to be destroyed. Get a handout, Ben, at the back of the room. Get two, one for yourself and one for your dear wife. Now, this may seem like an odd way of proceeding, but nonetheless, I think it will become apparent as you, shall we say, follow my madness as we go on. Now, we've always looked at the structure of the chapters or the pericopes that we have examined, and the structure of this chapter does not fall out neatly. That is, there are no inclusios here, there's no chiasm here, there's no patterning device, that type of marks the chapter out. However, there are some layers to the chapter, and I've indicated those on the outline as you follow it down the first page. If we begin on the right-hand side, you'll notice that I have labeled The Lord, thus says the Lord of hosts, three times. This is an interesting repetition. The term Yahweh Sabaoth, or the Lord of hosts, Sabaoth in Hebrew, which refers to the armies of heaven, the angelic troops, the host of the Most High. And in this instant, it's somewhat suggestive. For you would realize that the armies or the angelic host of heaven, of which God is the commander and Lord, and they bow before him night and day, includes the cherubim. So this phrase, Lord of hosts, which would include the cherubim, would resonate with the audience as they look at the doors to the temple of Solomon. As Jeremiah preaches in that location, the doors of the temple of Solomon have carved cherubim on them, which would remind the worshipers that they are in the presence of the Lord of hosts, symbolically representing his host of angelic army. Now that is not only true of the tabernacle or the temple doors, it's also true of the curtains inside the temple the curtains had woven into their fabric images of the cherubim now the precedent for this at least for the the curtains and the veil was in the tabernacle that moses had built or moses had uh, been re- had what had been revealed to moses in the wilderness in exodus 25 through 40 the description of the curtaining or the veiling of the tabernacle on the inside Included instructions to weave the portraits of cherubim into that fabric. Consequently, this phrase, Lord God of hosts, is suggestive of the aura, of the environment, of the arena in which uh, Jeremiah is speaking, and would resonate with the audience who was listening to this sermon. And you'll see the threefold use of it. I'm not going to push that in a Trinitarian direction, but nonetheless, it is interesting that it occurs three times in this chapter, or at least in this chapter, and where this sermon ends in chapter 8, verse 4. Now, on the left hand side, the first layer is a bracket that includes dwell in this place. That a bracket is broken, in other words, the motif for the the expansion of the sermon breaks at verse seven by a change of scene. We have been uh, looking at the temple in Jerusalem from verses one to seven, and then we switch gears, we are looking at Jerusalem, and then in verse ten to fourteen, we are reminded of Shiloh and so there's a second bracketed kind of uh, section to this uh, sermon in which he looks back in history to Shiloh from Jerusalem, from the perspective of Jerusalem. Now, the next scene is in verse 15. It's simply a one-verse reflection, but you'll notice in the 15th verse the phrase, the offspring or the seed or the children of Ephraim. Now, what does he mean by that phrase, by that word, Ephraim? Notice that he is uh, observing in that verse that uh, he will cast them, namely those in Jerusalem, out of his sight, as he has cast their brothers out of his sight. So, who is Ephraim? Okay, Ephraim that is Israel. It's interesting that Jeremiah uses the term Ephraim for the whole nation of Israel, referring to, K. how many tribes? The ten tribes, capital? Samaria, very good. All right, so Ephraim is the nom de plume, shall we say, of the whole northern kingdom. It's particularly the favorite designation for the northern kingdom of what other Old Testament prophet? Do you happen to know? Terry? I, I thought I saw it on your lips there for a moment.
1: It's not Elijah, is it? Pardon? It's not Elijah.
0: No, it is not Elijah. Elijah isn't uh, even in this <coughs> era of the, the demise of either kingdom. Scott?
1: That's Amos.
0: <laughs> it's not his favorite term, although I think he may use it. It is Hosea's favorite term for the northern kingdom, which raises the question, did Jeremiah know Hosea? Very interesting thing to ponder, does it not? Okay? Since he's using something which is nearly 100 years after the fact and perhaps even 150 years after Hosea himself, and yet he seems to be aware of it, or at least he uses the term in the same way. something worth pondering make sure you pick up an outline back there Chuck all right so the scene change in verse 15 is a change to the setting of the northern kingdom designated here as Ephraim and we'll, uh, we'll in a little bit later rather we will consider why it is that Jeremiah does this now in verse 16 He makes, uh, God himself is speaking through the prophet, God makes a rather startling statement. And you'll notice in your text that he tells Jeremiah not to pray for this people. This sermon did not end with a closing prayer. Every sermon you hear ends with a closing prayer, not this one. Jeremiah was told, do not close this sermon in prayer. And that stands out at the center of the entire sermon. It's interesting that in some ways it may be the hinge point of the entire sermon. But we'll leave that aside for the moment and go to the next scene, which begins in verse 17 and lasts to verse 20 and contains within it the duplication of Spite me in verses 18 and 19. Now, the scene is again back in Jerusalem, as the opening scene in verses 1 through 7 was. There is, therefore, a replication or duplication of structure there. He returns to the same place or the same location for his comments in verses 17 to 20. Then comes that second break with, thus says the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth. The next scene in verses 21 and following, and you'll pick it up in verse 22, the next scene focuses on Egypt. And what would be significant in the history of Israel about Egypt? Terry? Yes. And what's the good news? The exodus. All right, so Egypt slash exodus. They're recalling the scene of Egypt as a place of bondage and also Egypt as a place of liberation from bondage or the exodus. And that extends down to verse 26 when he changes scenes again in verses 28 and following. You pick it up in verse 31 for the first time. This is Topheth or the Valley of Hinnom. Where is the Valley of Hinnom? Can anybody tell me where it's located? What city is it in? Terry? Jerusalem. It is in Jerusalem. Okay. What direction in Jerusalem would I go? Is it still there today? I don't know. I don't know. It is still there today. They still call it the Valley of Hinnom. Where, what direction would I go? Good for you. There's a lady that looked at a map. Way to go. Oh, okay. <laughs> She's got one of those cheater Bibles. <laughs> that's that's good for answering Denison's questions. All right. It is on the southwestern corner and is still there. In fact, the Arabic term Ketef Hinnom means the shoulder of Hinnom, which is the top of the, of the ridge of the valley of the descent of the Uh, of, of the ridge that descends into the valley on the southwestern slope. All right, now you'll notice the duplication of Topheth Hinnom in 31 and 32. And then an interesting phenomena with the phrase declares the Lord that is repeated three times between verse 30 and chapter 8, verse 1. This entire section is bounded by an exclamation you shall say to them in verse 28 of chapter 7 and you shall say to them in chapter 8 verse 4. In fact, you shall say to them in 8.4 rounds off the entire sermon and starts another section of thus says the Lord. That's the reason most commentators extend this sermon all the way from chapter 1. Uh, uh, chapter 7, verse 1, to chapter 8, verse 4. Now, you might want to write uh, on your outline there uh, something else that is interesting about verses 30 through chapter 8, verse 1, the three occurrences of declares the Lord. Between verse 30 and verse 32, the horrors of Topheth are described. Between verse 32 and chapter 8, verse 1, the horrors of dead bodies are described. And between verse 1 of chapter 8 and verse 3 of chapter 8, the horrors of dead bones are described. The horrific, the horrific foretaste of what is in the offing for Jerusalem in terms of Tophet horrors, and dead body horrors, and dead bones horrors, is emphasized and re-emphasized and re-emphasized again by this rule of threes. Notice we have this rule of threes in the expression, thus says the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Saba Oath. We have the rule of threes in verses 22 to 26, the mention of the patriarchal or ancient fathers, particularly with respect to the Exodus. And so this pattern of using duplication does, in fact, uh, spill out here, though it doesn't spill out in such a way as to give us, shall we say, a formal, uh, regular patterning of the entire chapter. So the structure of the chapter is in these layers in which there are little bracketed units, which continue to reflect on scenes from Israel's present and past. Now, that brings us to the second page of the outline and the space-time interface. Now, once again, you may be baffled by my designation of space-time interface, But bear bear with me, there are two very good reasons for this ostensibly esoteric header, space-time interface. First of all, we must keep in mind where Jeremiah is standing when these words are recorded or when this revelation is delivered. He is standing in a particular space. And he is reflecting as he stands in that space on a particular time. That's the reason that I indicated that the motif of this sermon on the top of page one of the outline was a time in this space is about to end in death. There is a dreadful horror in the offing with respect to this space in due time. And yet, this sacred space and spaces sacred and profane in this chapter, like Jerusalem, Shiloh, Ephraim, Egypt, the Valley of Hinnom, those spaces are interfacing with the perspective of time past, time present, and time future. There is, at the climax, a catastrophic interface of God's wrath upon this or these spaces in time coming. We are therefore taught that divine revelation, the words of the Lord that come through the mouth of Jeremiah, divine revelation enters space and time. We may even say that divine revelation is here clothed with space and time. Jeremiah's sermon in chapter 7 lays this phenomenon before us as he preaches God's revelation in temple space, Space space-time interface. Now, the second reason for this apparently esoteric header, space-time interface, goes back to what we have suggested previously in this series on the life of Jeremiah. Namely, we have suggested that Jesus of Nazareth was regarded by some of his contemporaries, those in his own day. Jesus of Nazareth was regarded as a Jeremiah figure. In fact, Jesus was regarded as Jeremiah alive from the dead. And the text is Matthew 16, verse 14. Christ as a Jeremiah figure. Christ as a Jeremiah figure. But may we not also assert the reciprocal Jeremiah as a Christ figure? Ah. I believe that we may, and the direct connection or the interface between the two is found in the same revelatory phrase uttered by their mouths. This house, my house, you have made a den of robbers. Notice verse 11 of Jeremiah 7, which is parallel to Matthew 21, verse 13, and it also is repeated in Mark and in Luke. You will notice that at the bottom of this second page Mark 11:17 Luke 19:46 You are there confronted from the scriptures with the duplicate use of these texts which makes Jeremiah and Jesus mirror reflections of one another in some sense. Well, mirror reflections of one another, obviously, with respect to the revelation of God in space, in temple space. Because they both stood in the temple and preached, did they not? And in that temple space where they preached, they both suggested that in due time, this place is going to be leveled to the ground, did they not? Jeremiah predicts that it will come in 586 B.C. What does Jesus predict? It will come in 70 A.D. Destroy this temple. And so, the correlation, or shall we say the mirror relationship between the prophet Jeremiah and the prophet Jesus is itself explicitly detailed by the use of this text and by the place in which they stood, and the time they predicted of God's coming doom. The divine revelation from Jeremiah and Jesus occurs in the same location. On location, Jesus and Jeremiah, Temple of Jerusalem with the same indictment. You have made this house, my house, a den of robbers, issuing in the same judgment the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple which stood as its glory. Now you come to the details of the outline on page 2. On the left-hand column is the time vector. (coughs) On the right-hand column is the reversal of the character of the people in the nation. And as we move through these successive scenes, which we've already outlined on the first page of our outline, as we move through these successive scenes, we notice that what is occurring is an indictment of repudiation, that the people of Judah have repudiated the sacred space. In time past, in time present, and time future, God is going to repudiate them. Notice in verses 1 to 7, the scene of which is in Jerusalem the repudiation of the past, namely the temple as a location of sacred space. In other words, we enter into this temple in order to worship the Lord God has been repudiated. They have turned that temple into a place of idolatry. That space has been profaned. They have reversed its original revelatory orientation. So God, in future time, is going to reverse the reversal. He is going to bring the curse of that profanation upon that people and drive them away from that sacred space in due time to exile in Babylon 586 B.C. In verses 10 to 14, we noted that he began in Jerusalem and then reflected upon the tabernacle at Shiloh. In this case, the repudiation of time past was the repudiation of the tabernacle as sacred space. That sacred space, namely the tabernacle of the Lord at Shiloh, had been profaned. How had it been profaned? (coughs) The removal of the ark. The removal of the ark. And before that, why did, well, what was going on so that the ark even had to be removed? Listings, good. What else?
1: They had, they had uh stopped trusting God as their protector. Ultimately, they had, they had said, you know, we're gonna start counting. Didn't David count as, count as no, we're back
0: in the period of the judges. Who's 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 who's, uh, who's alive in this period? Ben, do you know?
1: No, well, first oh, we got two bins. <laughs> I'm gonna have to gonna have to designate. <laughs>
0: Yes, Samuel. And uh, and who precedes Samuel? Well,
1: the uh, priest Eli. And
0: Eli. Eli. And what's going on in the household of Eli?
1: Well, they profane the Lord's worship. How? How? They, they messed up the second. They, they profane the second boxes.
0: Mm. You, you're not incorrect, but it's not expressed that way. What are Hophni and, and Phineas doing? and doing? Pardon? They no, no, that's at, at Nadab and Abihu. They were
1: stealing. Pardon? They were stealing. And that is true.
0: What else were they doing? Pardon? Not prostitution, but sexual immorality. They were committing fornication at the doors of the tabernacle. They were laying with the women at the door who who ministered at the door of the tabernacle, which is one reason why you might say that Jephthah's daughter ended up being a kind of Old Testament nun. But we'll leave that aside. There were women who ministered at the doorway of the tabernacle, we know from 2 Samuel chapter 2. So this story is reflecting on the corruption that occurred within the tabernacle the immorality of Hophni and Phinehas, and the fact that the Ark was captured by the Philistines as a result of God's curse upon the nation because the, the priests were corrupt in their own right. Now, that vision, that repudiation, is now occurring once again with respect to the temple space. So, this uh, replay of profane space is going to lead to exile once again with the respect to, to the Ark of the Covenant, it was exiled to Philistia. And the Philistines couldn't stand it, so they sent it back. Now, with respect to the the temple, this space is going to be profaned and destroyed, and Israel, or Judah, the nation, is going to be exiled. All right, so this time-space interface once again crops up in Jeremiah's sermon. It all has to do with sacred space. The tabernacle was sacred space. And it, in time, was sent into exile for, for a few months, for a few weeks, a few months. All right, then we come to uh, Ephraim in verse 15, which we've already identified as Israel. How did Israel repudiate sacred space? Ben, Davenport?
1: Uh, by worshiping the
0: Not quite. They did worship Baal. But how did they start out and who started them out? Let's ask this question. No, let's ask this question. How did the northern kingdom begin? we got three Ben's in here. One, two, three. I'm going to to say Ben one, Ben two, Ben three. I've been there before. Ben. Anyone? How did the northern kingdom begin? Mar- or ben,
1: number one? By Jerobo, Jeroboam instituting false worship in Samaria.
0: Jeroboam the first. It, it, not so much he instituted false worship in Samaria, he instituted false worship in two other places. What did he do? How did he do it? What did he establish as false worship, Ben? By, by, uh, I think of, of
1: calves? Yes.
0: He had two golden calves erected, where were they erected? Not in Samaria. No. Terry? In Dan and in Bethel. In Bethel and Dan. All right, that's in 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 28 and 29. And why did he do that? Why did Jeroboam, this is Jeroboam the first, incidentally, about 930, 929 or 8 B.C., why did he do this? Art, why did he do this? This is a political season, right? So you've got to think politically when I ask some of these questions. Why did he do this? So that
1: they wouldn't go back and worship with the guys. Very good. The
0: other person in this drama is Rehoboam, son of Solomon, who provoked this split by laying more heavy taxation and burdens upon the people of Israel also sounds like another political discussion, all right? But we'll, we will leave that aside for the time being, and we note the fact that that precipitated a rebellion. And Jeroboam knew that if, in fact, he didn't have a competing worship center, they were all going to take their money down to Jerusalem. And he didn't want that. See, he, he, didn't, he didn't want all his money going to China or to Greece or to any place else. we're going to shut this down right away, and so he built two idols so that they would take their money to Bethel and Dan or their traffic or their trade or their tourist visas or whatever else they were doing. He was going to keep all that money home on the range, so to speak. All right, so there's a political maneuver for the sake of keeping all of Israel intact Economically, socially, culturally, religiously, politically, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Jeroboam the I was no dummy. after all, he'd gone down to Egypt for a while in exile, and he'd learned a few things down there about how to control people. Okay. Now that repudiation of the sacred space of Jerusalem, by the nation of Israel under Jeroboam in 925 to 930 BC led to God reversing that and profaning Israel, the northern kingdom, by exiling them to Assyria in 722. The ten northern tribes go off into captivity under the Assyrian sword, and as there is a reflection of this in Jeremiah's sermon to those who are listening to him in the temple of Jerusalem, this is, going to, this is going to be replayed, is the point. Like, I cast them out, I'm going to cast you out, I'm going to replay this curse of sending you into exile. And it's not going to be Assyria, it's going to be Babylon, because Assyria has been decimated by Babylon. All right, that brings us to verses 16 or 17 to 20 where we're once again uh, looking at the scene in Jerusalem. And here, you'll notice that the Lord uses that phrase, they spite me. There is a repudiation in Jerusalem in that sacred space of the Lord alone, and that repudiation includes the use and the worship of idolatry. So God will reverse that. He will reverse that by the Lord alone, repudiating the nation of Judah. And with wrath and fire and coming destruction, the nation of Judah will be alone without the Lord. He will no longer be God with them. He will no longer be the Emmanuel presence. He will abandon as he abandoned Shiloh and they wrote Ichabod over that uh, tabernacle. All right, verses 21 to 26 reflect upon the Exodus from Egypt, but the generation to whom Jeremiah is preaching have repudiated the liberation of the Exodus and the grace of God in liberating them. Keep in mind that what has happened in Jerusalem in Jeremiah's day is that they are contemptuous, of the release from bondage in Egypt. In fact, their kings are playing political footsie with the Egyptians in attempt to play games with the Babylonian overseers. And so this contempt for the liberation from Egypt and the Exodus is by parallel a contempt for the grace of God which liberated them they are contemptuous of the grace of God or why would you bow down before a statue and an image if in fact you were not contemptuous of the grace of God thinking that somehow in that shrine in that idol in that act that you perform in that deed that you even in the liturgical deed that you perform as you approach that idol that you were somehow not in need of the grace of God. You were declaring yourself independent of the grace of God. You were implicitly saying, I can do it on my own with the help of this idol, this dumb statue, this piece of stone or wood or ivory or gold or silver or whatever. See how serious this is. But Jeremiah is charging them with a repudiation, not only the exodus as an event, but repudiating the grace of God as an act. You're thumbing your nose at the grace of God. You're repudiating the act of God which saved you, which is his gracious act. And yet you're contemptuous of it. You profane his sanctuary by ignoring that. And so I will reverse that exodus on you. I will give you an exodus. I will turn that exodus against you. I will send you into an exodus of exile. And so the exodus of Moses is going to be reversed in the exodus of Judah in 586 B.C. And they're going to go into captivity in Babylon. Out of liberty into slavery. Now the final unit has the scene at Topheth and Hinnom, this horrid place of murder, in which the Sixth Commandment is violated by infanticide, by burning up their babies before the idol's of the gods of that valley, Baal, Chemosh, Moloch. Death is dealt out as you deny the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. And so, in the future, in this section, verse 30 through chapter 8, verse 3, the reversal of death and death curse and death horror will fall upon you threefold. The horrors of Topheth and Hinnom will be visited upon your own head, upon your dead bodies, upon your dead bones. <coughs> that valley where you slaughtered your infants will be the place where you are slaughtered, and where you piled up their infant corpses, your corpses will be piled up. The horror, the horror, not only of the infanticide itself, horrid to imagine. And yet, we cut them apart into pieces. We slice them up in order to get them out of the womb. Are we any better than the worshippers of Baal and the idols of the Old Testament? Ponder that. Ponder that. Well, Paralleling then the mirror between Jeremiah and Jesus at the bottom of the second page. The repudiation of the temple sacred space produces God's repudiation of the sacred space temple. He will destroy it. The time will come when God will curse that sacred space as his revelation declares, namely, his revelation through Jeremiah. A new thing will break forth. It will intrude. And that new thing will be the destruction of this sacred space. But note well, NB, note bene, note well. The revelation is superior to the space and endures. The revelation is superior. You still know the revelation though the space has disappeared. It endures, though its place knows it no more. You understand what is prior to the space. What is prior to the space is God himself and the revelation that comes out of his mouth from his own arena. That endures, not the space. So you want to absolutize the space in a millennial temple in a thousand year reign of Jesus on the earth? What are you saying? What are you saying? That the word of the Lord is not greater than the space in Jerusalem? Is that what you're saying? Are you saying that a piece of brick and stone is more permanent than the word of the living God? Is that what you're saying? Jeremiah is not saying. And if if the parallel, the mirror between Jeremiah and Jesus is sound, if that be so, Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Are you saying that that space is more sacred than the temple, which is the risen body of the Lord Jesus Christ When that resurrection temple enters into space and time, then you have no more earthly, temporal, sacred space. It's gone. It is over. Are you going to say that Jesus is telling tales, that he's telling lies? Because he says that my resurrection body is the only temple you will ever need. You better be careful what you're saying by implication when you talk about this dispensational millennial temple. You better be very careful about what you're implying about the words of Jesus and the words of Jeremiah. You better be very careful about what you're saying about the revelation of the word of God and his arena in the kingdom of heaven, the eternal glory throne of the Lord. Because no earthly temple No earthly temple, whether it's millennial, whether it's Solomonic, whether it's Herodic, no earthly temple is equal to that place in glory. None. So where would you rather be? Would you rather be in a 1,000 year millennial temple on earth in Jerusalem or would you rather be at the right hand of Christ in glory? Where would you rather be? Have I got anybody voting for a millennial temple when you could be right at the feet of Jesus? Yes.
1: And yet, notice
0: the more profound mirror here. The space that is this coming future temple, namely the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, will be cursed. It will be cursed. By being hung upon a gibbet. But the new thing that will break forth out of that curse upon the space of his body at that time of his crucifixion, that new thing will break forth in resurrection. So that when his body was raised up, his disciples remembered what he had said destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And that was the temple that they adored the living temple of the living Lord Jesus Christ. Note bene, note 12 the revelation incarnation person is superior to the space and is, as God himself is, eternal. The Son of the Father is as eternal as the Father himself is. And though he bears the curse, he bears it away, and resurrection is the declaration of the vindication that he is the eternal and eschatological temple of God. There is no other temple besides Jesus Christ. Come into that shrine and adore that lord of lords and king of kings. Bow at his footstool. Offer him living sacrifices, your very life. And realize that in his resurrection justification, all temporal space once and for all has been surpassed and annulled. You don't come into sacred space when you come into this building or any church that you enter. There is no such thing as sacred space. It is space which is just convenient for public worship, where you worship in spirit and in truth. That is the space into which you enter, namely, into the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That is where we are convened. That is where we are convoked. That is where we are called to worship. This space will pass away. And does not affect our communion and union in that space in glory, where by faith we join in a common bond to bow before the living temple, the living resurrection temple of the Lord God, his beloved Son, our dear Savior, Jesus Christ. And the confirmation of this in the case of Jesus is as the confirmation of it in the case of Jeremiah. 586 B.C. was the confirmation of the message of Jeremiah, and 70 A.D. is the confirmation of the message of Jesus. After 70 A.D., Judaism has never essayed to build another temple. It will never happen, in my opinion. And even if they do build a building, if Islam ever permits it, it will have nothing to do with the Bible. It will be a political entity completely. Any questions? Keep in mind, then, that with this sermon in Jeremiah, we're in an arena of profound revelation. A revelation in which the mirror between Jeremiah and Jesus is reciprocal. There's a very incarnate entity here where Jeremiah participates in union with Christ. And Christ draws Jeremiah into union with himself. Yes, Ben, number two, number three.
1: If you keep going in the chapter.
0: That is true. That is true. But I don't see it in the same structuring sense as I've pointed out the other three. However, I'm not making a case for my own infallibility in drawing out uh, those notes. So if you can work that into another larger structural pattern, that's fine. You
1: see it ending with the last reversal. A verse
0: four, you shall say to them as it is in verse twenty-eight. Yes, I'm bracketing that section with those two phrases. So that's where I bring the sermon to a to a close. So at that time, verse
1: one of chapter eight. Where's the time? That's five eighty-six BC. Is it the same as thirty-four?
0: As seven thirty-four.
1: Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 34. Yes,
0: that's the, that is, that's the same. That's the so same.
1: At that time, so then, then at that time, it the Lord, there's a
0: continuation of 34. Correct. Okay.
1: But then you, you end it where?
0: In verse 4. Okay. Now, this is this is suggestive, Ben. I'm not, as I say, I'm not drawing any bill of infallibility. There is no incusio here. There is no chiastic pattern. So what I'm doing, I'm working on layers of parallelism. All right, now, let's take a look at uh, page three of the outline and begin to pick apart some of the uh, individual passages. Beginning with That word gates, which appears there, the gate or the gates, it's both singular and plural in that verse, as you will notice, gates of the Lord's house. Now, the second mention of it obviously associates it with worship, so this is leading, these are the gates leading into the place of worship in Jerusalem in a temple, and you'll notice that it is all you of Judah who is gathering there. Now, this is not hyperbole. So how is it possible that all you of Judah could be gathering there? The elders? It's more than that. It is, it is the elders. All right, this is a huge crowd, is it not? So what would be the occasion? Or potentially the occasion? Could be Passover. What else? All right. <clears throat> there are three pilgrimage festivals, aren't there, in the Old Testament? And the first one has already been <coughs> uh, specified, Passover. What do we mean by pilgrimage festival? What do we mean by that, Loretta? <coughs> That you have to do what? Passover, you have to do what? Where do you have to go? To the temple. In Jerusalem, right? So you've got to go up to Jerusalem. So the Psalms of Ascent, going up to Jerusalem, all right? All right, now, Passover is the first of the pilgrimage festivals. What's the second one? Come on, you old CRC folks. that's right that's the reason I knew you were former CRC that's the reason I threw that question because the CRC always had a service on Pentecost right at least in the old days they did Pentecost was the second pilgrimage festival 50 days after Passover and what's the third one Art what's the third one Tabernacles. Tabernacles is the third one or the Feast of Booths and what season of the year is that What season of the year is Passover and Pentecost? In
1: the spring.
0: In the spring, but your name's not Art. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'll take a guess. the fall. It is in the fall. <laughs> yes, it is usually in September or October by our calendar. So <clears throat> we have the spring harvest at Pentecost. That's actually what Pentecost is. It's the first fruits of the grain harvest. Okay? Passover is commemoration of the exodus from Egypt. <clears throat> then <clears throat> Tabernacles is the Thanksgiving harvest. It's like our Thanksgiving. It's the end of the... Uh, planting year, the harvesting year, everything's been gathered in to the cornucopia, etc., and so they have a great week-long festival. <clears throat> this reference to Jeremiah standing in the gates of the tabernacle, temple, rather, when all of Judah was coming, suggests that he was standing there during one of the festival, one of the pilgrimage festivals. Whether it's Passover, Pentecost, or Tabernacles, we don't know but it is likely that the crowd that is there is there to celebrate a festival. In other words, God has sent him there on a purpose to get the largest audience he can get to hear what God is about to speak. Now, in verse 3, God says, I will let you dwell in this place. Now, that's somewhat ambiguous. If you were reading that verse in context and you came to this place, what place would you think he's talking about? Band number two? Okay? And what in Jerusalem? Um,
1: Temple? The temple, right.
0: Associated with the temple that they're standing in, and of course the location, the city in which it's located. But I said it's ambiguous. Look down at verse seven. So what does verse seven tell you this place means? Ben number two. the The land. Namely. Judah, not Judea, Judah. Judea is New Testament, okay? Judah is Old Testament. <coughs> All right. So it is possible that when he refers to this place, he is speaking of the nation as a whole, or he may be simply indicated Jerusalem. Verse 7 leans epithetically to the land, to the whole nation. He says, I'll allow you to dwell in this land, meaning by that, by this place, the land. Now in verse 4. <coughs> famous Zion theology, which is also reflected in Psalm 132. But Psalm 132 indicates the Zion theology in its proper reference. This verse in Jeremiah 7, 4 is a misinterpretation. It's a misinterpretation by the false prophets. We've already met the false prophets in Jerusalem and Jeremiah Day in chapter 2, verse 8. And also elsewhere in the book, I want you to turn to chapter 5. Go back to chapter 5, verse 13 and notice what Jeremiah says about the false prophets. And Cheryl, have you gotten to it yet? Chapter five, verse 13 of Jeremiah.
1: Um, Yes.
0: Would you read it please?
1: The prophets are, but want wind and the word is not in them. So let what they say be done to them.
0: Thank you. False prophets are windbags. They're full of hot air. And Jeremiah is not ashamed to say it. Well, actually he's saying it by divine revelation. But these false prophets, if you turn to verse 31 in that fifth chapter, those false prophets are prophesying lies. They are prophesying falsely. So this Zion theology which we see back in verse 4 of Jeremiah 7 is a false theology. It is a false interpretation of Psalm 132. It is a false interpretation of the place of Jerusalem. Why? What do they mean when they say the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these, or the temple of the Lord is here, whatever version, whatever way your version translates it. What do they mean by that? When these false prophets echo that refrain... What are they suggesting? That it's
1: gonna be there forever? It's gonna be
0: there forever? An attitude of what? Permanence. Permanence. The temple is gonna be permanent? What else are they what else are they implying?
1: Completion.
0: Completion, what meaning mean? what?
1: Meaning that's the end, that's the
0: Okay, we're at we're at the high point of God's revelation. What else? Art, you were about to say something profound.
1: Well they're pretending to be prophets. When they say that they predicting the future.
0: Okay. What else?
1: They substitute the temple for the Lord.
0: That's true. What else? What's the
1: these implying?
0: Are these? Are these blocks, stones? This is presumption,
1: isn't
0: it? This is presumption. Because we have the temple, we presume that we're impregnable. We're inviolable. We're invincible. We're insuperable.
1: It's not even the ark. It's the
0: temple. It's the building itself. It's because, because God has placed his dwelling place here. We cannot be moved. Though... We worship Baal, though we even have placed idols in this temple precinct. Remember, as Jeremiah is preaching, inside the gates of this building are idols. So they're arrogant in their presumption that they cannot be conquered. They cannot be overcome because they have the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord regardless of what they do. They can practice fornication and worshiping worshiping through the prostitutes of the Baal cult, homosexual and heterosexual prostitutes, and think that we will stand because we have the temple of the Lord. We can grab for all the gusto we we can get. You only go around around once in life, right? So just grab for all the gusto. Just grab for whatever you can grab. Because we have the temple of the Lord. We have a hydrogen bomb. We have the temple of the Lord. Presumption. Which allows them to live an immoral and despicable lifestyle. Burning up their babies alive. Such conceit is a stench in the nostrils of Almighty God, because this is an entitlement theology beyond all entitlement theologies. They think that they are entitled to being allowed to live in this land and do whatever they please, because that temple is an inviolable sign and seal of their exceptionalism. Well, God will take measure of that entitlement theology. For people who live that way, thinking they deserve to be entitled to the fruit of the land, God will take his measure of that kind of thinking. And he will bring a crashing halt to that entitlement program. In 586 B.C., with flaming arrows coming over the walls of Jerusalem and battering rams, hacking away at the gates and fire beginning to eat up the walls. God will take his measure of such an attitude of presumption, overconfidence, arrogant conceit. You defy the almighty arms, you shake your fist in the face of heaven, and you say, I deserve, I'm entitled you owe it you take that attitude anywhere in your life and God will allow you to reap what you have sowed which is exactly what he does to Judea to Judah and Jerusalem in 586 BC all right why three times why this trinity of the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord? Is this kind of a anti-temple trinity, Trinitarian confession? Why three times? What do you think, Maki? You've been silent back there. Good. Very good. How so? Give me the grammatical significance of the emphasis. If I say it once, that's good, right? If I say it twice, that's better. If I say it three times, that's... It's all right, you may submit to your husband.
1: Superlative. It is the
0: superlative. It is best, good, better, best. I think that the key here to the threefold is for emphasis, as Maki pointed out. Very good. But I think the emphasis is grammatical. Saying it once, this is good. Saying it twice, that's better than good. Saying it three times is superlative. I like that, Ben. Thank you very much. That's the best. And so the conceit is heightened by the fact that they repeat it to the superlative degree of their Arrogance.
1: They are. They're (laughs) arrogantly
0: sure. All right, now, what needs amending, verses 5 and 6, 5 to 7 rather. Well, what needs amending is in verses 5 to 6. Murder, theft, robbery, oppression. That's the list of what needs amendment. You'll notice the list is repeated in verses 9 to 11. So we have two lists. Once again, point of comparison and emphasis They're duplicated because Jeremiah is working it into their consciousness. They're not doing justice. Murder is not justice. Theft is not justice. Oppression of the uh, alien and the orphan is not justice. It's injustice. So they're not doing justice. But who did justice? Josiah did. In Jeremiah 22, verses 13 to 17, he explicitly indicates that Josiah, King Josiah, during his reform of the nation of Judah, did do justice. Well, then, where did this injustice come from? What's the root of all injustice? It's idolatry. That's the root sin of this nation. It's idolatry. It's the love of self. It's the love of me. It's the love of my agenda and not loving my neighbor. And that love of self produces moral perversion. Temple prostitutes, homosexual and heterosexual, robbing from, stealing from the widow and the orphan, oppressing the weak and the helpless, placing those who are less than you in subjection to you, Defying yourself as the barometer of what is right and true. What is the level of discussion? What is the rhetoric of acceptability? What is politically correct? And then anybody who does not follow that rubric, you suppress. You call them names. You slander them. You misrepresent them. You lie about them. You do everything to destroy their character. Because you are the measure of truth. You are the measure of all that is powerful, powerful and controlling, powerful and controlling and ultimately messianic, Mm -hmm. idolatry. Sin of idolatry, which Jeremiah pounds and pounds and pounds away at relentlessly in virtually every chapter of this 52-chapter book, the sin of idolatry is the root of all the other iniquities and transgressions in this nation. You go down that road and you won't come back without a crisis. You won't. You read your history books, it is always there. Well, who was the one that brought this shedding of innocent blood, as the expression is here in Jeremiah 7, into Israel? It was Manasseh, the grandfather of Josiah, a bloody king, the longest bloody reign in the history of the southern kingdom. Yes, he did repent at the end of his career, but nonetheless... He had a lot of sins behind him and a lot of blood had been shed. Well, then, why is Jeremiah moaning if Josiah cleaned it all up? Josiah purged (coughs) Judah (coughs) of the iniquity of his grandfather and his father Ammon. Well, then where is this coming from? Or is Jeremiah preaching this first sermon during the reign of Josiah? Where's Josiah dead? And Josiah's reformation is now being turned back. Turned back to idolatry, injustice, robbery, murder, persecution, subjugation, oppression. Jehoiakim is probably the fly in the ointment here as the passages cited there on your outline indicate And particularly in chapter 26, verses 20 to 23, when he murders or has murdered, he approves the murder. He sends the agents of murder after him. He murders one of the prophets. He murders Uriah, the prophet. He has him killed in cold blood. That's Jehoiakim's idolatry of self. I have the power of life and death. Kill that fellow. Kill him right now. Because he won't bow down to me. All right, the deceptive words in verse eight are the words of verse four, which we've already noted, and the verses and the words of verses ten and eleven where you say that we are delivered. But notice, they are delivered not by grace, but because of their immorality and their depravity, they are delivered from grace. We want nothing to do with the grace of God. And that will be clear when we look at the Exodus paradigm in verses 24, 22 through 26. They despise the grace of God. They mock the grace of God. They sneer at the grace of God. And they persecute those like they persecute Jeremiah. They persecute those who defend and who believe in the grace of God. They say, as they bow down in their idol shrines, we have no need of saving grace. We are righteous. You are the wicked. We are the righteous ones. You are the wicked sinners because you suggest and teach that we need something outside of ourselves. We need something that we don't have in our own arena. You suggest that our enclaves of power can't deliver us, can't preserve us, can't maintain and support us. You suggest that we need something other than ourselves. And we say, you are the wicked liars. We say, you are the wicked sinners. We say, you are the evil people and we are the righteous people. Don't talk to us about the grace of God. Don't even talk to us about God. We will boo you. We've already talked about verse 11. The temple is a hideout for these thieves and robbers. That is, they frequent it, where they practice their own immorality within its precincts. Shiloh, we've mentioned, and the relationship between Shiloh and the temple in verse 14 is the parallel between two places of corruption. Hophni and Phinehas' sins, particularly their fornication, and this den of thieves that the temple in Jerusalem has become a place of corruption. If it's precisely what Jesus points out when he turns over the tables of the money chambers, you have made this place a den of robbers. The temple had become corrupt. Verse 15, <clears throat> and the date of the reference to the offspring of Ephraim being cast out. What is that date? Ben Davenport? Uh, You'll get it yet. Scott?
1: I'm sorry, I'm on the last thing I had. Okay. 722
0: 722 BC, very good. And who destroyed the offspring of Ephraim? The Assyrians, good. Now in verse 16, we run into this do not pray expression again. Is this an absolute prohibition? No, it's not, because in other places of Jeremiah, which are listed there, particularly in verse 4, chapter 42, you will notice that God commands him to pray for a certain part of the population. Therefore, the intent of this phrase in verse 16 is, do not pray for them at this time. At this time. Zedekiah in chapter 21 will come to Jeremiah again in 37, he'll come to him and ask him to intercede with the Lord, and Jeremiah will agree to do that. And so consequently, this prohibition on Jeremiah praying is specifically with respect to this incident. But we are reminded of another prohibition, or shall we say another prayer which is made uh, which is not made for a group of people. Jesus says in John 17:9, I pray not, I pray not for the world but for those whom thou hast given me out of the world. We are dealing here with the secret and for counsel of God. We don't know that. If we had a special revelation not to pray for somebody then we could follow that revelation but we don't have any of those. And therefore we pray hoping For the salvation of all, knowing that the salvation of some will surely be affected by God's electing grace. Verse 17. What are they doing? Well, it's described in verse 18. They're making cakes to the Queen of Heaven. Who is this Queen of Heaven? This takes you back uh, six months, I realize. (laughs) Do you remember, Kay? All right, this is Ishtar. Ishtar, I-S-H-T-A-R. This is the Babylonian goddess of sex, love, war, and fertility. She is an astral deity, which means that she is a heavenly uh, deity. She comes out of the heavens, and they are making cakes to her. Now, Jeremiah warns them not to do this because they are spiting God. In other words, they're placing this uh, (coughs) goddess in the place of the true and living God. So did this warning take effect? No, it did not. In chapter 44, verses 17 and 19, after the city had been destroyed and a remnant had gone down into Egypt taking Jeremiah with them, Jeremiah warns them again not to make cakes to Ishtar, the queen of heaven. She's named there in that section, but they defy him. They say, no, we will do as we did in Jerusalem. And so they continue in their idolatry, obstinately, stubbornly, even after the fact of having been burned out and driven out and having to run for their life. They still return like the dog to the vomit. What does it take to slap him upside the head? What does it take to slap any sinner upside the head? It takes the Holy Spirit, doesn't it? It takes a regenerating power. It takes something that will transform. It will take something that will circumcise those ears and open that heart. That's what it takes. Otherwise, they continue in their hardened, hardened, obstinate, stubborn manner. And they will refuse They will refuse the grace of God until he sovereignly opens the gates of their soul and comes in to richly dwell and save and sanctify them. We pray for the regeneration of hearts. We pray for what only God alone can do. He will change that heart of stone and give them graciously Sovereignly, a heart of flesh. Now, verse 20 indicates that this coming wrath and judgment is cosmic and eschatological. Why do I say that? It's cosmic because you'll notice that all elements of the created order are involved man and beast tree and earth. The whole cosmos is involved in this. In other words, the judgment that fell on Judah and Jerusalem is a microcosm of an eschatological judgment. And God says in that 20th verse, it shall not be quenched. It will burn and not be put out. In other words, it will reach a finality that will not be altered. The people of Judah and Jerusalem who faced the swords and spears and the fire of the Babylonian army were standing in front of the last judgment. It was the last judgment come forward in history to them and in that moment they entered into the assize of heaven, the court of the living God. And their souls received the final judgment. It is for this reason in part that Jesus projected 70 AD as a microcosm of the last and consummate final judgment. But the anticipations in the previous history of redemption are a sober reminder. As Augustine said, there's just enough judgment in this world to cause us to realize that there is a final judgment in the offing. Ah, indeed, there is. Therefore, while it is today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. In verse 22, is he saying that sacrifice per se is not acceptable? No, he's saying sacrifice from a hardened heart is not acceptable. Any unbeliever can bring an offering. You can throw your coins in the offering plate or the alms plate all you want without being a believer. It means nothing. But God says, I don't want that kind of offering. I don't want that kind of sacrifice. I want obedience. Obedience is better than sacrifice. Here we go back to Samuel. We go ahead to Jesus. It is this relative comparison between you offering with a hard heart and thinking that you're earning something by it that you have somehow indebted or obligated God to you because you gave him a gift. That's a works merit paradigm and it'll never fly. It'll never fly. And that's what God is objecting to here. Because, of course, he had given sacrifice to the children of Israel when they came out of Egypt, properly worshipped in the spirit of a repentant and humble and believing heart. Verse 26, this is a reverse Exodus. Fill in the blank on your outline. Exodus. Why the lament? Verse 29. Because they cut their hair. It's a sign of grief, it's a sign of sorrow and mourning. And notice the litany of silence, the silence of the prophets. I've sent my prophets to you day in and day out, and you would not listen to them. Up in verse 27. It's a a litany of death. The silence that comes through death in verse 33. It's a litany of the silence of the city. The city falls silent, verse 34. It's a litany of the silence of the grave. Even the cemeteries are silent. Well, of course they are. Verse 1 of chapter 8. Well might you cut your hair and grieve and lament. For Jerusalem you are reaping what you have sown. What are the detestable things? They are the idols and their idol altars which have been erected. Where have they been erected? Second 2 Kings 21.5. They have been erected in the temple itself by Manasseh, the grandfather of Josiah. <clears throat> Who is it here? Is it Josiah? No. Second 2 Kings 23.10. It is not Josiah. For he had purged those detestable things from the temple then who is it? Probably Jehoiakim because in Ezekiel chapter 5 verse 11 and in Ezekiel chapter 8 verse 6, you will notice that Ezekiel from Babylon prophesies or indicates that Jehoiakim is still continuing to worship idols, the detestable things in the temple of the Lord. So it is likely that this sermon dates from the reign of Jehoiakim, which means 609 B.C. or sometime later. Many scholars think it's early in Jehoiakim's career, and so we ask the question, why then did Jehoiakim allow this idolatry to be restored to the temple? The context, Jehoiakim comes to the throne by the power of Egypt. Pharaoh Necho II on his way back from Carchemish in 609, after he had killed Josiah on his way up to Carchemish at Megiddo, <clears throat> Necho, on his way back, deposes Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, who is placed on the throne after Josiah is, is killed at Megiddo, and puts his own puppet, namely Jehoiakim, on the throne of Jerusalem. All right, so the master of Judah is Egypt. Nico controls the landscape of Egypt through his puppet, King Jehoiakim, but the threat on the horizon is not Egypt. The threat on the horizon is Nabopolassar, the father of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, for they have just beaten Nico to a fair thee well at 609 in Karkimish and driven him back down to Palestine where he unseats Jehoahaz and seats Jehoiakim. So Jehoiakim is knowing, is realizing that he's got two things to worry about. Number one, he's got to keep his puppet master king, his, his king puppet master happy namely Nico in egypt and he's also got to watch out for nebuchadnezzar and his son nebuchadnezzar who are going to breed down his neck if he makes a false move so <clears throat> we need stability in this country we just had an egyptian army march through this nation we got to bring things to a halt here we got to get a little bit of peace and quiet we got to <clears throat> we got to we got, got to have some fun and games so we better throw some bread to the to the masses. We better have some circuses or, or whatever. We better have some fun in, and, and uh, fun in the sun time. So why not idols? All right, it's a whole game of pacifying the mobs or pacifying the populace. So Jehoiakim potentially in an effort to establish political tranquility and stability, restores idolatry because the people love it. That's Fun and game stuff. That's really fun worship. Okay, We get to worship idols and do all kinds of immoral things at the same time. So Jehoiakim is willing to allow that to, uh, to, <clears throat> to exist, even though 2 Kings says that he did evil in the sight of the Lord through his whole career. So it's likely that Jehoiakim is the one that brings it back. Verse 31, page 4. The infanticide uh, infanticide arose under Manasseh, 2 Kings 21.6, was abolished by Josiah, 2 Kings 23.10, a passage I've already mentioned, was revived by whom? Probably by Jehoiakim, notice verse 5 of Jeremiah 19. The valley of the slaughter of children will become the valley of the slaughter of the Judeans. There is no other place. There is no other place to bury them. So many corpses, there's no place to put them. Josephus, when he describes the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. to the Romans, Josephus has a graphic description of the pile of corpses in Jerusalem that the Romans heaped up as they slaughtered their way through the streets of the city. It was probably very much the same way in Jerusalem in 586 B.C. Verse 33, the irony, their sanctuary temple, which was the shrines of the idols in the valley of Hinnom, (coughs) their sanctuary temple would become their cemetery. It will become their funeral parlor. It will become their graveyard. Their sanctuary would become a place for the carrion eaters, and they will pick their bones as they lay bleaching in the sun to become the dung of the earth. Verse 2 of chapter 8. The end of the voice of the bridegroom means there will be no children in the future of this nation. You sacrificed your children. You sacrificed them to the God's the idols of the nations, and you will be sacrificed so that there will be no childbearing for you because your voice will die with your body. Dead brides and grooms, no children. Question? Yes, did that it did. Keep in mind, thousands of people were killed in 586 B.C. There were probably thousands, not as many, killed in 597. There are are three invasions of Jerusalem. Probably 605 was the least uh, noxious. 597 was more so because Jehoiakim was already dead. But 586 was the last straw. Nebuchadnezzar had had it. Are we talking 586
1: or 722?
0: No, we're, we're talking about 586 now. The only place he mentions Israel or Ephraim is in verse 15. Okay, so we're back. so, so we're, we're back to Jerusalem. And finally, a note in Revelation 9:6, where Jeremiah says that those that remain will wish for death rather than life. Revelation 9:6, those who are evil persons alive at the coming of the Son of Man. That is, those who in Revelation 9 verse 4 are not sealed by God will long for death. They will long for death. It's like this passage where Jesus says they will wish that the mountains would fall upon them in order to end their misery. We see the burn layer in Jerusalem and I've showed you the picture of the burn layer in Jerusalem 586 B.C. which has the Babylonian arrowheads in it. We see that burn layer over an inch of ash, over an inch thick ash. Can you imagine how hot that was to burn dirt down an inch deep? You have no conception of the inferno and the blood that flowed in Jerusalem. It was horrid. And Titus didn't want to be a piker compared to Nebuchadnezzar. Josephus writes that the streets of Jerusalem literally flowed (coughs) red with blood. This is not a happy ending to a nation which had stored up the wrath of God against that day in that space. The warning for the space of this cosmos is exactly the same. There is coming a time when the wrath of God will be poured out in a flaming and fervent heat upon this cosmos. We realize that Christ has taken that in our place because we realize that we are debtors, not to ourselves or our merits, but we are debtors to the grace of the Lord Jesus. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. We are sobered, Lord, by the warnings of the prophet Jeremiah, but we are lifted up by the mirror reflection that the Lord Jesus shares with him, and that this message of wrath and coming judgment is a message which has fallen chiefly upon our Lord and Savior, the Son of God. We treasure his life and his death and his resurrection because he is the living resurrection temple of the Lord God. And he sequesters us and snuggles us in the refuge and safety of his own temple life. Lord, we draw near with faith. Yes, trepidation, because we realize the depth of our own sin and the sin of our generation. But we draw near with with hope and with confidence that Christ Jesus has taken us into the temple of heaven. And no sword can touch us there nor can any iniquity any longer bring us into judgment. For our Savior Jesus Christ has borne the judgment we deserve. And we thank you and love him for doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. Praise his name. And we bless his name for Jesus' sake. Amen. We'll go on to chapter 11 next week if you want to read ahead.